Welcome to another Welcome to another episode of Bioethics in the Margins. And today we have a very special guest. We've got a journalist on called Tim Schwab from The Nation. And he's been writing extensively about um, Bill Gates and some of the issues with the philanthropy and other institutional um, impact that Bill Gates is having around the world. Um, so Tim, is there anything else you want to say about yourself before we get going on the questions? Um, no, I'm actually, I, I do write for The Nation, but I'm a freelance journalist, so I'm not um, employed by The Nation. I've written for the British Medical Journal, Columbia Journalism Review, and I'm writing a book right now about Bill Gates for Henry Holt Books. It should be out this year. Brilliant. Um, and can you just tell us a little bit about The Nation, since that's where we, we got the articles that we're going to discuss today? Um, the Nation is one of the oldest uh, news investigative magazines in the United States, it's also one of these rare places where if you're an investigative journalist with an idea to take on the Gates Foundation in 2020, which is when I started this reporting, they're one of the only places that would publish it. Um, it's that kind of um, it's, it's a special place that's willing to look at counter narratives to challenge mainstream narratives about structures of power. I just want to mention the two articles we're focusing on today are um, the Gates Foundation avoids a reckoning with race and power and um, are Bill Gates's billions distorting public health data. But I know you've written lots of other things as well. So just to get going, then, um, what got you interested in exploring philanthropy and its potential harms? Um. You know, as a journalist, you're always looking for um, what hasn't been covered to, to try and find new ground. And to me, I mean, I've recognized the Gates Foundation for years as one of the most powerful, least scrutinized actors on the global stage. Um, you have Bill Gates. I think right now he's in India with the G20. You know, he's acting almost on a peer level with um, elected leaders from nations all over the world. He's under the auspices of philanthropy and charity. What he's really doing is exercising political power. He's changing public policy that guides how we feed, medicate, educate children, poor children all over the world. So it's, I think, a mistake. Um, I think it's a dangerous mistake to, to sort of view Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation naively as this well-meaning, unimpeachable philanthropy, because what Gates is actually doing is exercising power and the job of journalists, as I know it, is to challenge structures of power, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. And if that's sort of your guiding light of how you approach journalism, then the Gates Foundation should be one of the most scrutinized um, actors in the world, not one of the most exalted. Yeah, I agree. There has been a lot of exaltation of <laughs> Bill Gates. Yes. And he rarely gets criticized. Um, and why did you focus on him as opposed to some of the other sort of billionaires, philanthropists around the world? Um, well, Bill Gates is, um, I think, among the billionaire philanthropist class, he really is categorically at the head of the pack. He's almost at a different level because of the, the scope of the, the foundation's finances. So that right now, the endowment, the most recent tax filing shows that it's a $54 billion endowment. So I can't remember the next biggest one might be the Welcome Trust, but you're talking about it's it's quite it's significantly more in terms of the, the buying power that the Gates Foundation has. And on top of that, Bill Gates has this kind of celebrity and this bully pulpit that gives him um, in a way that you don't really see with, with another billionaire philanthropist. I really do see that the Gates Foundation as 
special in this class and deserving of special attention and scrutiny. And I think this is something that ethicists should be thinking about because as you sort of mentioned earlier, there's such implications in terms of, you know, policy and power. So this inevitably has effects on, you know, a huge amount of the population globally and in the US as well. Um, what are the, can you outline some other issues, for example, vaccine distribution that Bill Gates has had his hand in and how that sort of distorted, um, you know, how people have received their vaccines in places like Africa? Um, yeah, well, I'll just say it, it's so nice to be on this podcast and to have this conversation with ethicists. Um, you know, doing this research, you meet all these different groups, tax scholars and teachers, and now I'm talking to ethicists. I do think this is the conversation that could be happening um, in, in a much bigger way, but I'm just so glad to reach this audience to talk about it um, in, in this area. Uh, with vaccine distribution, you know, Bill Gates, he sees vaccines as, um, he calls them magic or magical. I think for, for Gates, they combine a lot of his personal interests in terms of innovation and in terms of markets. So it's really a sweet spot for Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation. Um, vaccines obviously um, save lives. Um, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation are helping getting vaccines in the arms of poor people. That's saving lives. Um, but that can't be the entire story of how we understand what the Gates Foundation is doing. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll talk about what happened with the pandemic. But even before the pandemic, um, the Gates Foundation funded, founded and helped governs this um, global body called Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines. And um, it's become a really important and central procurement mechanism um, it pools money from donor governments, it works with poor governments to try and negotiate um, lower prices from Pfizer and everyone else for vaccines to get them into the arms of the poor people. Um, so it's a very market-based approach. Um, you know, it's not about um, challenging the monopoly power that often governs vaccine markets. It's about working with monopoly power in, in the hopes of coming up with a charitable or humanitarian end. Um, but, you know, there, there's always other ways, um, I guess two things, you know, one, vaccines are, you know, an important um, intervention, important medicine, um, but they're not the only medicine. Um, it's not the only intervention that we can think about with public health. And, you know, Gavi has been criticized and Gates Foundation more generally has been criticized for not thinking in a more uh, holistic way about a health systems and a systems-based approach. You know, for Bill Gates, you have this succinct technology or commodity, a vaccine, you, you know, you put it in somebody's arm, you can calculate out the lives saved, the dollars in, the lives saved out. You know, it's a very kind of simplistic and some would say reductionistic sort of way to look at, at global health when, you know, it's um, when you're spending money on um, Gavi and the Gates Foundation's agenda in public health, you're not spending money elsewhere. So that larger conversation would look at what are the opportunity costs? Um, what are these, these poor nations, the intended beneficiaries of these programs? Are they meaningfully involved in how these decisions are being made? Is this how they want uh, public health? Is this what they want public health to look like? Hmm, yeah, interesting. Um, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Amelia. Go ahead, you go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm just interested in your take on 
uh, colonialism in, in the aspect of the uh, Gates Foundation. Um, so, of course, what other reservations uh, do you have about um, the Gates Foundation uh, grants to North America, Europe? Um, and of course, we already talked about low middle income nations, but uh, can you explain um, in your perspective the colonial view that you cite uh, that has permeated the foundation with this colonialistic type of um, mentality? Yeah, so I I kind of just alluded to it with Gabi, but to, to look more fully at the Gates Foundation, one thing I've done in my reporting is I've looked at every charitable grant the foundation's ever given. So you, you have that that spreadsheet of 30,000 grants and you can do all kinds of analyses. And one analysis I did was to look at where the money is going by nation. And I found out that 90% of the Gates Foundation's charitable dollars are going to institutions in rich nations. I think the number was actually 88%, but almost all of the money that the Gates Foundation gives away, ostensibly to help poor people in foreign nations, is going to wealthy institutions in rich nations, mostly the United States, UK, and, the Switzerland, and Switzerland. So it is a very kind of, it's, it's hard to avoid the colonial sort of optics in that model of giving, of not helping the poor, but helping the rich to help the poor. And these are the same kind of criticisms you could bring up about an institution like Gavi. It was founded by a billionaire in Seattle. The governing board is a lot of, it's the Gates Foundation and uh, wealthy donor governments and executives from the pharmaceutical industry and the banking industry. So, I mean, there are a few seats on the board of Gavi for Four Nations, but they didn't start this project. They didn't, uh, they don't have a, they didn't have a meaningful say in its creation or a meaningful say now in its governance. So all of this gets back to what I see as a very sort of colonial lens um, in the Gates Foundation's work is really working with and through uh, wealthy institutions, especially the private sector and multinational companies with the hopes that this is going to drive social progress. And I think there's, you know, in fields, in the fields where the Gates Foundation is most prominent, like um, global health, there's this kind of rich now discourse about decolonized global health happening. It hasn't quite come to the doorstep of the Gates Foundation, but I think that's starting. Hmm, interesting. Um, so, so in a sense, uh, usually philanthropy is looked into the perspective of a good thing, right? Oh, they're giving their money away. It's, you know, and of course it's really great marketing, if you will. Um, and says like, oh yeah, I'm such a great person. I have all this money and I'm sharing to help people, which is a good thing. Um, however, uh, there's always, as you know, uh, two sides to every coin uh, to use that particular expression. Uh, so what harms do you see coming from philanthropy? I know you alluded to some of the um, unethical um, ulterior motives um, previously, but uh, what harms, uh, in addition to that, what harms do you see coming from philanthropy? Um, you know, and undue influence, societal influence, financial influence, academic influence. Um, uh, I'm interested to hear your uh, thoughts on that. It's a big question, but I should start off by saying that I don't see any um, bad intentions from Bill Gates or the Gates Foundation. I think they actually have good intentions. I think Bill Gates wants to help poor people. I think he thinks he is helping poor people, but he's doing so the only way he knows how, uh, which isn't sharing power. Um, so I think that's a real uh, problem in, in the Gates approach. But 
In terms of the ethical problems, um, you know, I hope you share this in the show notes, the piece that Amelia wrote. Um, it, it tees up this idea of taxation. Um, so something like 50 cents of every dollar that Bill and Melinda French Gates give to the Gates Foundation, they'd otherwise pay in taxes. So tax scholars widely say that billionaire philanthropy has to be viewed as highly tax subsidized. Taxpayers are putting in billions of dollars to support the Gates Foundation's work, but taxpayers have very little in the way of checks and balances over the operations of the Gates Foundation. And in some cases, we can't even see the flow of money uh, where the Gates Foundation is spending its money. So, you know, the foundation is using public funds, but the public has very little uh, way to, to see how these funds are being used. So I think that is a major problem in terms of governance, and I would say it raises ethical issues too, about what Bill Gates is doing and the Gates Foundation is doing with our funds. Um, I mean, th the other issue is that the foundation, its, its power and its wealth is such is that it can take over entire fields. Um, it can, you know, plant its flag in an area like malaria research and policy or you know, you can go down the list, Agri um, agricultural development in many sub-Saharan African nations, educational standards in poor schools in the United States. When the Gates Foundation plants its flag and, and asserts its leadership, um, it's, it can really easily take over a field. Suddenly it's funding the news media, it's funding think tanks, it's funding the academic research, it's talking to members of Congress. Um, and you have this great deal of, um, epistemic power in terms of shaping knowledge and controlling information and shaping the narrative about how we understand whole fields. You know, and one thing, this is sort of an abiding legacy of Bill Gates is he doesn't like competition. He doesn't like to be challenged. And he has the wealth and, and, and that sort of animating feature about him, this anti-competitive animus, I think, to go into fields and to want to dominate them, to want to monopolize them. And, you know, again, this gets back to this issue of the lack of accountability and transparency. For anyone who cares about democracy and who's concerned about the growing specter of oligarchy, where you have a small group of super rich people who exercise outsized political power, I think that Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation should be seen as, um, as an important threat to democracy, not as something that we should, you know, um, just sort of easily genuflect to and to exalt. Interesting. Um, thank you for that response. And um, one last question uh, before I uh, give it back to um, my friend and colleague, Amelia. Um, so so I think there's an underlying issue here regarding um, how uh, the super wealthy influence policy. And this is an issue um, not just in America, definitely um, internationally as well. Uh, so what are your suggestions for these checks and balances? Because, of course, we have lobbyists, and I'm sure, um, you know, I'm, I'm not quite uh, aware regarding the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or the Bill Gates uh, Foundation, um, if they actually have lobbyists in uh, Washington and other particular areas of power where it influences uh, and continues to maintain and sustain the way that they actually operate, not just nationally, but internationally. Um, so if you could expound on that, if you actually know if there's like a lobbying um, aspect for um, the Bill Gates Foundation, but also um, suggestions on to actually have checks, real checks and balances and saying, hey, I don't care how much money you have, how much power and influence you have, there, there are boundaries that you cannot cross. 
Yeah, it, this is a very tricky issue in terms of, you know, telling somebody how they can or can't spend their money. And this is the bigger problem, especially for me as a journalist, and certainly when I first started this reporting, trying to get publishers and editors interested in this reporting is like, with so many problems in the world, why are we going to look askance at a billionaire who's giving away all of his money? Aren't there better targets? Aren't there more important things? And so that, that kind of logic short circuits our ability to understand what's actually happening, which is that this is a classic money and politics problem. This is a conflict of interest issue that journalists are built to, to investigate. Um, the Gates Foundation, in some legal technical sense, cannot lobby, um, but they have many different ways that they can make their voice heard. They have their own office in Washington, D.C. Um, they're constantly talking to legislators, policymakers all over the world about uh, putting money into organizations like Gavi that they founded and they helped run. Um, so they have, I mean, there are rules and regulations guiding their interface with the body politic, but they're pretty weak um, and there's a lot of gray area in there that, you know, it's hard to really see. The way I've always viewed the Gates Foundation is that, you know, we regulate and scrutinize lobbying and campaign contributions. But billionaire philanthropy should be seen as part and parcel of that same political influence because they're shaping how, uh, you know, Congress spends taxpayer dollars. They're shaping public policy at home and at abroad. So to your question, you know, how do you regulate this or can we put checks and balances on it? It's, it's really tricky um, because if you were to, first of all, there's a big, uh, like a, a special interest group around billionaire philanthropy now. Uh, you know, all of these organizations that are funded by philanthropy that are going to protest any regulations over philanthropy, the so-called freedom to give. Um, the other issue is that if you were to start, you know, really heavily regulating Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation, they could just shut down the foundation and start donating money as private citizens. You know, if it's not this tax advantage, tax privileged, nonprofit, private foundation, um, then it's not subject to the, these rules and regulations. I mean, the most succinct and I think obvious way to address this issue is through taxation. You know, should the Gates Foundation be given major tax benefits and privileges for donating $80 million to the private high school that the Gates children attended? What about the hundreds of millions of dollars I think that the Gates Foundation has given to Duke University where Melinda French Gates attended? You know, there's many different places and those are just some of the most egregious examples. I mean, I would just say as a general rule, I don't know why we would give somebody like Bill Gates major tax breaks for creating this private foundation that in a lot of ways seems to operate like a political actor. Um, so, so the taxation that can happen in a lot of ways, you know, there's a, I think a pretty vibrant discourse right now around um, how we tax the wealthy or how we don't tax the wealthy. So um, I think we need to, set aside some of this political fatalism we have and have this ability to imagine a different world in which we ask the rich to pay their fair share, in which maybe we don't organize society in our economy in such a way that you have a very small number of people with obscene sums of wealth, and then billions of people who can't, you know, satisfy their basic daily needs. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a great point. Um, and then can you speak a little bit about, you know, just if 
people are donating to institutions in the US, how that also can potentially distort, um, you know, it's a conflict of interest in a way, as you mentioned, that, you know, they may want to follow the vision of the philanthropist rather than pursuing the real needs that they, they should be addressing within their institution. Yeah, I mean, this is an issue, especially when you have a kind of whale like Bill Gates, who can just put, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars into a project. And then it very easily becomes a scenario where the eyes and the attentions and the interests, you know, what are we doing? What's the agenda? What's the priority? You start to look to your benefactor who has very narrow and very clear ideas and ideologies about how the way the world should work. And what gets lost in this is the actual intended beneficiaries. You know, the Gates Foundation model is not going out to talk to the global poor, to ask them what they need, what they want, how they can help. The Gates Foundation model is assembling a small group of experts in Seattle who think that they can solve every problem. And then you know, organizing a very top-down response, working with rich institutions and wealthy nations and delivering problems that, you know, in some cases, yes, they do help. Um, but that can't be the entire story or entire understanding of what the Gates Foundation is and what it's doing. So I just want to switch gears a bit and talk about um, your other article, which discussed the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. So you you did mention earlier on about, you know, having this amount of power actually can um, influence the knowledge that people have. And this um Institute is sort of an example of that. So can you can you describe that a bit more and how that's funded and the harm that's happening with that? Yes. Yeah, so when I first started my reporting, I, I noticed all the money the Gates was putting into universities. I had long been had kind of carved out a beat about reporting on conflicts of interest in science. So I wanted to do a story about Gates funding of universities. The biggest recipient by far is the University of Washington. It's in Seattle, the backyard of the Gates Foundation. It's between its donations to the University of Washington and the University of Washington Foundation. It's more than one and a half billion. I think it's closer to $2 billion at this point. That money, it's, it's not, the Gates Foundation is not just handing them over money. They're, they're giving them money for specific projects that advance the Gates Foundation's agenda that align with what Gates wants to do. And one of the biggest recipient of that money at the University of Washington has been the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. So this is the institute that everyone, all scholars, policymakers, look to as the gold standard for telling us where people are getting sick and from what, why people are dying. You want to see if how many people are dying from malaria in Senegal. You want to see over time, are the interventions that we're using working or not working? The IHME has become the place to look for these numbers. It, didn't, it wasn't always that case. This used to be the World Health Organization that did this work in consultation with national governments, with member states who could provide data and um, estimates of their own to the WHO, which could then publish these estimates. Um, I mean, there, there is a real problem that the IHME is addressing, which is that we don't, in the, in the poorest nations where we have the most need for the, the, these health metrics for where people are dying and why, we don't have good data. You don't have the CDC there, like you do in the United States, collecting detailed granular data. Um, Tens of millions of people die each year. They pass from this earth without an autopsy, without a death certificate saying why they died. So we do need to know where people are dying, why they're dying. If we're going to create priorities, we have 
finite resources to address public health. You want to make the dollars count. You want to know where the dollars should go. You want to know if the interventions are working. What the Gates Foundation has done, though, by creating this institute, the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation, um, they've basically monopolized. They've been able to take control over the numbers. And that means they can also take control over the wider narrative of public health, of global health. Um, it's these numbers. It's, it's, there's some of the, they publish, the numbers that they publish have become some of the most cited, um, some of the most cited studies in all of science. Um, the Institute is one of the best funded um, institutes. I mean, I think it, when I did that study, I think Gates had given it $600 million. I mean, just like a stunning amount of money that's gone into this institute. But the institute's also become extremely embattled and controversial because of its methods and its approaches. Um, scholars widely complain about the lack of transparency and accountability in its work. They describe it as a black box. Um, you know, we, the whole point of this, you know, science is to have open science to be able to have scholars peer review it. You know, scholars say they can't even peer review the studies because they don't have enough time, because they don't have access to all the information they need. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the picture, and, and this isn't just one or two people with sour grapes. This is a very kind of, a, you know, the, the BMJ just last week came out with a, another study raising these same concerns about the IHME. This is a longstanding problem. And, you know, the real worry is that the normal checks and balances that should work in scientific publishing and in scientific, the scientific enterprise are not really working. And a big reason that working is because the IHME has become too big to fail. As long as the IHME has Bill Gates funding and his support, um, you know, nobody can compete with them and they can continue to be, uh, have almost monopolistic power in this field. Yeah, no, that's really disturbing and um, sort of goes against all normal scientific sort of work. And I think one of the issues that you, you sort of did say, you know, was this not sharing data and things like that. So difficult for others to judge um, the conclusions that people are coming to. Um, and I think isn't a lot of the work published in The Lancet you had mentioned in your article, and there's been a lot it of controversy is. around that. Yeah, they found a major champion in Richard Horton. You sort of had this interesting triumvirate of men. You have Bill Gates at the Gates Foundation, Chris Murray at the IHME, and then Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet. And the three of them have become this powerful triumvirate who together have worked to make the IH in the gold standard. But, you know, uh, so you have the normal checks and balances you would expect at a publication of the, the repute and prestige of the Lancet. But I've talked to scholars who have been called on to be peer reviewers and have said that it just doesn't work. Um, it's pretending to be something it isn't. They'll give scholars, uh, peer reviewers, you know, a document that's, you know, extremely long. And they'll give them a really fast turnaround time to, to give them feedback. It's just, it's just not working. I mean, the other real unorthodoxy and strange thing that happened was the IHME awarded Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, a $100,000 gift, which, I mean, I, when I discovered that and discovered that nobody said anything publicly, I didn't see any um, outcry from journalists who would normally see this as a conflict of interest or ethicists. I didn't see any reporting raising questions about this issue, but just to make it plain for your listeners, I'm sure I don't have to, you're editing a scientific journal that publishes research from this institute, and then you're accepting a personal award of $100,000. I 
I mean, just the optics of that are unbelievable to me. Um, so I'll give you the response. You know, the IHME was saying, well, we, we, it actually came from Richard Horton said that, that the award came from the board of directors of the IHME, which he sees as different from the IHME somehow. They clarified that it's not funded by Bill Gates, but it's funded by another board member. I mean, I, those responses to me don't add up to a whole lot. I, I just can't believe that the scientific enterprise, I mean, it just really magnifies its concerns that, I don't know, is the scientific enterprise really working in this regard? I'm not sure that it is. Well, I think um, there's a lot of fear of taking on, isn't there, of taking on Bill Gates and challenging him. So people sort of just go with the flow a bit. Um, Absolutely. So just, just to your point real quick, there's this term, the bill chill. There's the chilling effect. Everybody either is getting funding from Gates or wants to get funding from Gates. So they're afraid to criticize him. So just, I, I'm not saying that no critical research exists so that nobody ever challenges the Gates Foundation. I'm just saying in the aggregate, that bill chill is a real and present effect. So if we were thinking about like how this data we better manage by the WHO, how, how would you think that would be best, uh, you know, work best and how would that be funded? Um, because the WHO has its own issues, I think. Um, so what would you see as a better way of, you know, this data being gathered and, you know, analyzed and published? Yeah, well, I mean, it's worth also pointing out that the WHO and Gates, that line of separation is becoming less and less clear because Gates is the second largest funder of the WHO. So, you know, it's not like it's a totally independent organization. Um, you know, you know, in terms of like alternatives, I don't know that it should be one place like either the IHME or the WHO. Like, I think we should think about this as being a, a really robust competition, a plurality of institutes who could kind of compete on the same plane and produce different estimates. And then, you know, that's that's my understanding is that you put them out in the, in the scientific uh, publications, you debate, you debunk, you challenge each other. And then from that, you start to get closer and closer to the truth, to knowledge creation. So I don't know that it needs to be a monopoly in one place or the other, but I just think that having a billionaire in Seattle be able to take over the whole enterprise seems particularly problematic. And I should just also note, the WHO still does do health metrics. Um, I mean, they're, I think, a very, very distant seconds from what IHME does. And to a large extent at this point, I think they're more collaborators than competitors. So, so if we were living then sort of in an ideal world and, you know, these people wouldn't be earning, in my opinion, these billions in the first place, um, but how would they be better to share their wealth and you know, I think we have this idea that just this philanthropy can sort of equalize economic inequality um, when clearly I, I don't think that's working. So it's sort of in an ideal world, how would you see this, this working successful people, um, you know, feel they deserve their wealth and feel they've earned it and they have, you know, um, special talents that merit this reward, financial reward. Um, so how, how should we sort of go about trying to change that? Um, yeah, this sort of social Darwinism where you feel like you've earned this money and you're, you're a natural leader and you should share your, not just your gifts, but your expertise with the world. Um, 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, again, to go back to this issue of taxes is one thing um, that if everybody was paying their fair share, it'd be a very different world. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that Bill Gates doesn't pay taxes. I, you know, Bill Gates clearly does pay taxes, but what the question is whether he's paying his fair share and what that could look like. Um, so I think that's a very big part of it. But to your other point about, you know, I think what you, if I didn't mishear you, you said that, you know, I don't know that billionaire philanthropy is really delivering, is going to, you know, present the solutions that it often claims. And I think that's absolutely true. That the existence of billionaire philanthropy, I think, is an emblem of the, the inequality that we have, that we need uh, a billionaire philanthropy to solve social problems. I think we should take a step back and say that just that that model itself is a problem. Um, you know, if, if you're asking, you know, well, what do, what do we do with this phenomenal amount of wealth that Bill Gates has right now? Um, you know, personally, I think that it would probably be better for democracy, society, and honestly, I probably think it would be more effective if the Gates Foundation, just like that, just started writing checks to poor people, giving them money and saying, you know, here's some money. I'm not going to tell you what to do with it. This is your life. This is your money. Um, do with it what you will. I mean, I think, you know, that would be a lot more uh, effective and probably efficient than paying all of these consultants, McKinsey consultants and these high priced institutes in Geneva to manage these really complex administrative procurement mechanisms to try and do X, Y, or Z. Um, you know, and to, to get back to this issue about some of the work that the foundation does in public health, you know, the foundation is very much oriented around a business as usual model that doesn't really challenge um, the, the sort of monopoly market power that governs the marketplace. So yes, Gates it can negotiate with a company like Pfizer to get a cheaper vaccine, and it can take donations from American taxpayers to buy that and create these mechanisms to get in the arms of the global poor. But you know, at a point, couldn't we think bigger and more imaginatively about, well, why don't we you know, pressure or create new rules and regulations that make these big pharmaceutical companies share the recipes for their vaccines that help poor nations um, you know, scale up the manufacturing capacity so that they could produce them themselves. Um, you know, obviously a company like Pfizer is not gonna get rich selling their vaccines to a poor nation in Sub-Saharan Africa, but that doesn't mean that they should, that poor nations, their access should turn on a complex procurement mechanism that a billionaire in Seattle has devised. There has to be, we have to be able to think in bigger, more imaginative terms. Yeah, those are great thoughts. Kirk. Yeah, um, yeah, really um, a great conversation um, so far. Definitely enjoying this, an array of uh, perspectives on my brain is um, going in like five different directions uh, listening to the conversation. Um, but um, one thing that I would like to um, address, uh, just hearing about the the structure uh, globally, not just economically, uh, economic structure globally, but how the uh, political structure of health is um, curtailed globally. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, in our American history, the Gilded Age. And in many ways, we're in like the Gilded Age 2.0, where you have all of these monopolies, right? And we need somebody or more than one person, but I know uh, President Teddy Roosevelt 
broke broke up all of these monopolies and created uh, workers' rights and, of course, conservation laws so that we can, you know, conserve our environment and all these other great things. And I think we need, um, you know, one voice would be great, right, the savior to help solve all these problems, but I think we need an array of different voices and institutions and governments um, and goodwill, because, of course, governments always act in their uh, best interests, you know, their self-interest, um, to try to figure out a way uh, to um, ethically and equitably uh, distribute wealth, but also how can we have some type of, and this is a bad word for those who like to stay in power, regulation, <laughs> have type of some type of regulation um, in place. And of course, when you're dealing with international politics, laws, diplomacy, it is very, um, very, very tricky. And how do you get this accomplished, right? Um, but uh, in, in, I guess in a macro type of perspective, how can we, um, in a sense, uh, manage monopolies in a way that it is more um, equitable and ethical and the balance of power is uh, shared? And that is, of course, is the um, billion dollar question, if you will, multi-billion dollar question. So these are different thoughts that uh, came in my mind as, as hearing about all of the complexities of money, but also how that money's used for power, as we've been talking about in our conversation. And it's actually amazing. I did not know that the World Health Organization, um, second biggest donor was, uh, you know, is Bill Gates. I did not know that because I was going to ask you, what can, does the World Health Organization have any type of regulatory authority? But obviously, you're not going to bite the hand that feeds you. Um, you know, you're going to continue to get that money so you could, uh, of course, do the things that you feel um, suits your self-interest. So, um, so yeah, I don't really have a question, but it was just a comment based off of um, uh, the complexities of wealth and power and politics, not just uh, domestically here in America that Bill Gates has, uh, um, but internationally as well. Yeah, I mean, my mind goes to the same place that yours goes, sometimes spinning, sometimes spiraling. I mean, these are very big problems. And, um, you know, the Bill Gates problem, that's the, the, na the name of my forthcoming book. Um, it, it really forces us to, to think in these really big picture terms. Um, I mean, what Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation, I think, represent is a kind of neoliberalism. It's about everything you know, driving social progress through market-based solutions, through working with the private sector. It's about the importance of technology, the primacy of multinational companies. And I think honestly, in a lot of ways, that's a kind of anachronistic perspective on the world. Like that was like the 1990s to the 2000s, that sort of reigned supreme. But I think we're moving beyond that. But Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation are still clinging, clinging to these like business-minded, business-as-usual solutions to solve social problems. So, you know, I do think that the foundation is on the wrong side of history, and it's going to become increasingly apparent um, in, uh, in the years ahead. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is the pandemic, and maybe that's like a good way to explore some of the, some of the questions that you raised or the questions that you're thinking about. But, you know, we have the global COVID pandemic, we have um, vaccine manufacturers uh, developing these shots that everybody in the world needs, I don't know, two, three, four of. So you have this really potent marketplace. And um, 
Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation thought they had the convening power, the network, um, and the muscle to really create equitable access to vaccines. Um, and it's um, at a time when government leaders all over the world were sort of fumbling or certainly organizing their work around protecting their own constituents, Bill Gates really did emerge. He reached a new zenith in his career by planting his flag and saying, I got this. I will manage the pandemic response to the global poor. Vaccines, diagnostics, therapeutics, we're going to get to equitable access and we're going to doing this the way I always do it. You create this big buyers, uh, kind of basically a buyers club. You get donor nations to pool their money. You have this big sum of money. Suddenly you can negotiate lower prices with vaccine manufacturers. And in the first year of the pandemic, the news media really praised Bill Gates for this kind of fearless leadership. But then when the vaccines actually came out, the you know everything fell apart. It was a complete disaster. Uh, pharmaceutical companies did what pharmaceutical companies do. They're for-profit companies. They're going to sell their products to the highest bidder. Um, you know, the United States um, did what you would expect the United States to do. The government organized its financing to protect its own citizens, the people that elect, you know, people of Congress, the president. They're organizing their work around helping their own citizens, not helping Bill Gates and this complex procurement mechanism that he's created. So it was really an ultimate test or an ultimate referendum on the Bill Gates model of power and philanthropy. It's what Bill Gates personally can do and also the limitations of billionaire philanthropy more generally. So the, the subtext here is that there was another way. Um, many public health experts, advocates and experts were saying, why don't we waive the patents? Uh, more than 100 nations filed a petition with the World Trade Organization calling for a waiving of patents, these monopoly patents over the vaccines. The first step that would allow manufacturers um, all over the world, maybe even including import nations, to start producing these vaccines. You know, you have this global pandemic. You're trying to get everybody vaccinated as quickly as possible. It just sounds obvious you would want every manufacturing facility moving to produce this vaccine. Um, but Bill Gates became the biggest apologist and a champion for big pharma, insisting the patents were not the problem. Um, he said, you have to trust me. I'm going to negotiate these deals to try and make um, to try and make the markets work for the poor, to try and work with these uh, monopoly pharmaceutical companies. And it didn't work. Um, I mean, the, the sad part of the story is that, you know, there was ever, never really much accountability for Bill Gates or the Gates Foundation for its failures. Um, sometimes the failures get attributed to COVAX, which is the kind of wonky name for this mechanism that Gates created. Sometimes the failures get attributed to Gavi, which was one of Gates' key partners in it. But the, the project was really a Gates Foundation project. And so I think as we think about, um, you know, when the next pandemic comes, do we want a billionaire in Seattle to be in charge? Um, what are the different ways we could manage a future pandemic? Um, don't we owe it to ourselves to run out these counterfactuals to think about um, how we can do it better next time and what lessons have we learned? Yeah, excellent point. Well, um, thank you for, for coming here today. This has been an amazing conversation. Yeah, and thank you so much for having me. It's so um, nice uh, to, to speak with you all today, um, not just because you're nice people, but because you're eth ethicists. And it's just heartening to know that there's this cadre of people in the ethics world who are thinking about these issues too. You know, my hope is that all of these, you know, the tax scholars and ethicists and teachers and 
there's a point where everybody should come together into one conversation instead of having different conversations. So, you know, maybe that'll happen in the years ahead. Yeah, hopefully. Maybe we can get you on a panel. Sure, let's do it. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so much. Okay.